Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is September 22nd, 2021, and I'm speaking with Eric Hintz, who is a historian at the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation, which is part of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And Eric is the author of American Independent Inventors in an Era of Corporate R&D. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Hey, Babak, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Eric, you start your book with the widespread perception in the early 20th century that the golden age of independent inventors in America was over. Can you describe that golden age and tell us why so many people thought it was over? Sure. You know, the golden age of invention in America is this, I would say it's probably this era in the second half of the 19th century. So think about, you know, 1850 to about 1900, maybe 1910. And this is, you know, probably all the the great heroic inventors you've read about in in books as a kid or as an adult. This is Thomas Edison. This is Alexander Graham Bell, Samuel Morse, uh, Colt, Tesla. There are these kind of heroic figures that, through their genius, uh, create inventions and then build entire industries out of them, like the electrical industry or the telephone industry, or someone like the Wright brothers who uh, who powered flight. Part of the reason that is considered a golden age is this period in the late 19th century kind of overlaps with the romantic period in art. And there's this fascination with these heroes of invention. So you get all of these fawning biographies and paintings of inventors and children's books that celebrate them as heroes. And so during this period, these inventors are kind of held up as heroes and they're a convenient stand-in for uh, America's technological ascendance. So there's this really heroic period in the late 19th century. But then the second part of your question is what happens? You know, how does that golden age end or why is there a perception that it's ended? So around uh, 1900, you start to see the emergence of the first corporate R&D labs at places like General Electric, AT&T, DuPont, Kodak, Corning, Alcoa, the biggest technical firms. These are highly capitalized firms, right? Big, big money. And the directors of these firms are not willing to bet the technological fortunes of their firms on the idiosyncrasies of some uh, wild haired genius inventor. They want to make invention more repeatable, more continuous, more predictable. So, you know, they basically hire scientists and inventors and they internalize the inventive function and bring it inside the firm inspired largely by Edison himself and his Memo Park Laboratory. You hire uh, a staff of inventors and you work on multiple problems at the same time. And then all of those patents belong to the firm and they can commercialize them all within the confines of the vertically integrated firm. Now, as this new mode of invention, corporate R&D, becomes popular and more and more corporations adopt it, they're also invested the corporations in trumpeting the success of their new labs. And so corporations also have big advertising budgets. And I argue in the book that the corporations go on a PR campaign that both celebrates their new form of invention, the corporate R&D lab, while also kind of denigrating the independents. They cast them as uh, antiquated, unsophisticated tinkerers. And that, I argue, is part of this perception that the corporate R&D lab has replaced or supplanted the independent inventor because that's what the corporations wanted you to believe. And for those independent inventors who persisted, how did they try to accommodate themselves to the rise of corporate R&D labs and the new perceptions of independent inventors? 
You know, one of the most fascinating things that I found in researching and writing the book is the degree to which independent inventors, that is individuals, didn't just compete with the corporate R&D labs, they also partnered with them. And I found this just so interesting and ironic because on one hand, as we just discussed, the corporate R&D labs are using their advertising and their R&D to promote corporate innovation and denigrate the independents. But at the same time, they're cutting deals with the independents behind the scenes. So in the early days of corporate R&D, many of these corporations found that they were not able to furnish all the different technological needs of the firm through their own employee inventors. They still had an active program of going out into the marketplace, striking deals with independent, unattached inventors, and licensing and buying their patents. And so a huge company like DuPont that makes all kinds of munitions and chemicals They had a consulting deal with Hudson Maxim, an independent inventor, and Maxim had developed a smokeless gunpowder. But Maxim didn't want to join DuPont as uh, an employee. He wanted to stay independent. So they developed this consulting arrangement. Maxim would license his patents to DuPont. DuPont would pay him royalties. They would share information. So there was this interesting consulting arrangement that I found over and over again. When you look at the records of uh, inventors and firms, they weren't just competing as rivals. They were also cooperating as partners. And patent laws uh, were especially complicated for independent inventors. How did patents serve to stimulate or hinder invention and competition? It's a really great question. There are those two sides to the patent law. So, you know, the IP clause is written right into the Constitution in 1790. It's Article 1, Section 8, which is the basis of not only the patent laws, but the copyright laws. So, The whole point of the patent laws is to give an inventor temporary period of protection to exclude others from using the invention so that they can build a business and profit from the invention. So that started out as 14 years, it became 17 years, now it's 20. So the term has changed uh, over the years, but the idea is the same. The idea is to stimulate invention. And it definitely did that. I, you know, one of the interesting things that I found was, especially for women inventors and African-American inventors, the patent system was really important. In the era that I write about, right before 1920, women are unable to vote. The early 20th century is the era of Jim Crow laws. So, you know, you have um, these two populations that are otherwise kind of socially marginalized, they're disenfranchised, and yet the patent statues have no restrictions on race, age, sex, national origin. It's one of the more democratic institutions in the United States. And so I find that um, women inventors, African-American inventors are able to use the patent system not only to you know, build businesses and, and find some economic mobility, but they also use the patent system as a way to sort of trumpet their cause for civil rights. Now, the flip side of that question, which you mentioned, is that the, the patent system could also be used to hinder invention and competition. So the corporations that build R&D labs quickly realize that patents are one of the keys to sustaining their monopolies. So if you're AT&T and uh, you have the Bell patent, but then you acquire many other telecommunications patents and your R&D lab is cranking out additional patents and you sort of build a turtle shell of intellectual property protection around this mode of communications, it's pretty impossible for anyone else to break into that technology. And if they try, you will sue them and you're AT&T, right? So you've got a huge bankroll. And this is one of the things that I found is that, you know, many of these corporations, I talked about AT&T, but also RCA, 
uh, General Electric, many of these firms used patent infringement lawsuits as a way to discourage individual inventors from competing with them because they found that they could basically sue them into bankruptcy. So patents were really one of the ways that corporations maintained their monopolies. You describe in your book how independent inventors really were eclipsed by corporate labs after World War II, in large part due to the use of patents, as you just said. Has that situation stayed the same since? You know, there's a really interesting evolution in the decades uh, after World War II, and you're correct. I would say that R&D, corporate R&D labs are really ascendant in the decades immediately following World War II. So if you think about like the 1950s and the 1960s, this is the Cold War. There's a ton of government contracts flowing to huge firms like IBM because we need mainframes to handle all the business of the federal government. You know, there's huge contracts flowing to Boeing and Lockheed and other defense contractors and on and on. So the Cold War and much of the research needs of that arms race, you know, tended to flow to the contracts, the research contracts and the invention contracts would flow to the corporate R&D labs because they had the scale and the ability to handle some of these big projects in a way that an individual inventor never could. But I find that things kind of change around the 1970s. A lot of things happening in the 1970s. You have a lot of uh, economic dislocations, right? There's OPEC oil embargo, and then you get stagflation. Many of these corporations that had kind of gotten fat and complacent on government contracts, they start having some uh, real difficult times. They kind of their productivity stagnates. There's some embarrassing failures uh, where you know, like RCA uh, kind of gets outflanked by the Japanese companies like Sony and things like Consumer Electronics. And R&D kind of begins to dwindle. And there's a lot of fear in the United States about American competitiveness, corporate competitiveness, and things like that. So uh, several laws uh, get passed that make things a little bit easier for independent inventors to compete. One of the most important ones is the Bayh-Dole Act. So this is federal government research, uh, often going to universities in the form of NIH or National Science Foundation grants. Bayh-Dole Act allows the commercialization of government-funded research. So you start to see in the beginning, 1980s, it's things like Genentech coming out of Stanford uh, with Herbert Boyer and UCSF. You also see things like Google coming out of Stanford, right? This is Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Also, the tools get a little cheaper, right? If you think about many of the things that garage inventors and dorm room inventors are making in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, it's computer-based uh, innovations. It's software, right? So you don't need a huge chemical laboratory uh, to be an inventor. If you have a pretty good laptop and some software, you can you can code an app uh, or build a website and start a company and do pretty well as an independent inventor. So there's a lot of things going on in the, the latter part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century. But I would argue that, yeah, after kind of taking it on the chin after World War II, where R&D is ascendant, I would argue that uh, independent inventors and small-scale innovators have made a resurgence here at the beginning of the 21st century. So your book recovers the history of independent inventors in the 20th century, and it's a very interesting and very complicated story involving corporate strategies of invention, innovation, patent laws, regulations, and court cases. So if you step back a bit, what does your history tell us about the role and prospects for independent inventors now? 
Yeah, that's a great and challenging question. If I think about why this history of independent inventors is relevant now in the 21st century, I think it kind of boils down to two different ideas. The first is practical. You know, the, the question that we just talked through, which was what are the different ways to um, promote innovation, right? You can sort of do the corporate way where you're really focused internally and trying to bring everything out from the corporation or uh, sort of opening up the corporation a bit, partnering with different inventors and trying to sort of diversify the sources of invention. I think that's one of the, the more practical outcomes of the research is this idea that I think innovation works best when you diversify the sources of invention. So if you are a government lab, it makes sense to spend a little of your budget looking around and creating a competition, a challenge saying, hey, we invite independent inventors to send us solutions for a particular government challenge that we have. And NASA has been very successful at this by having challenges like, hey, invent us the next great space suit glove or something like that. And you get people from many different walks of life submitting different solutions to those kinds of problems. The same is true in industry. Procter & Gamble has been really great about uh, inviting independent inventors to solve and uh, bring their um, product ideas into Procter & Gamble and then commercializing them on a huge scale. So I think the answer there is, is one is practical and that when you have several different sources of invention and you allow many different flowers to bloom, you have a better chance of something good happening when you diversify the sources of invention. I think the second answer to your question about contemporary relevance is cultural. It's a little hard for your average person to understand what happens inside a corporate R&D laboratory, but it's relatively easy to understand what happens in someone's basement or someone's garage and this idea of the plucky uh, maverick independent inventor. And, and we see this reflected culturally, right? People love these stories. Um, you know, Shark Tank, the ABC show, it's the Emmy-winning show. I think it's in something like its 12th season, right? People love to see plucky inventors come on and try to, to make it. We've had several movies lately that feature independent inventors. Um, and I think back a few years to Flash of Genius. This was Greg Kinnear starring as Robert Kearns, the uh, beleaguered inventor of the, of the intermittent windshield wipers who battled Ford and the other automakers. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence starred as Joy Mangano, who was the, you know, the inventor of the Miracle Mop, and she was a star on QVC. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard that Gal Gadot is going to be starring as Hedy Lamarr, who was an actress, but also an inventor during World War II of some technology that helped to steer torpedoes and is now the basis of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and other communications technologies. So I think there's a real thirst uh, and an interest in American uh, society for these kinds of stories of independent inventors. Great. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Babak, it was a pleasure. Really fun. Thank you. The book is American Independent Inventors in an Era of Corporate R&D, published by MIT Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Rita Allen Foundation.